Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <sighs> so here we are at a, a very sweet point in the retreat. It's ending tomorrow, just in case you hadn't been aware of the time. <laughs> I have a feeling you are. And uh, I wanted to, uh, to talk tonight about bringing our practice into the world. And I thought I'd start with a, um, a contemporary prayer <clears throat> that uh, my dear friend Howie Cohn first turned me on to. <clears throat> Dear God, so far today, I've done okay. I haven't gossiped or lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, crabby, mean, nasty, selfish, bitchy, or overindulgent. And I'm very grateful for that. But dear God, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And then I'm probably going to need a lot more help. <laughs> Amen. Mm. It's hard. Mm. We're about to leave. And uh, the, the question might come to you, well, now what? Or how do I bring this into my life? <clears throat> what have I learned? How can I apply it in a, in a meaningful way? You know, here we have the most supportive conditions. You're fed. You have a schedule where you don't even have to think about what to do next. Oh, walking. Okay. <laughs> oh, sitting. Okay. And a very supportive environment of everybody around you um, so committed sincerely to, uh, to working on themselves and to opening up to Dharma and practice and hearing talks and checking in with interviews. Um, it, it's not like that at home. <clears throat> and yet what you touch here, this is like the, I think of it as a, like a training ground so that then you can bring it into your life. And I know if, uh, that many people here have done retreats before, so you keep on coming back for some reason, uh, hopefully besides, oh, I got it before, can I get it again? Uh, you probably are seeing the fruits of your practice out in your daily life. But it's, it's not so obvious sometimes. So I wanted to share with you the challenges and, and also some um, pointers and besides that, some um, possibilities as you, uh, as you leave here. I wanted to first share with you uh, what we're up against um, or one aspect of what we're up against or what we have to con contend with, I should say. Uh, this is from uh, my favorite writer, um, a guy who uh, lives out in the Bay Area and uh, writes a weekly column. His name is Mark Morford. And this is from his column, uh, which you can Google, called Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. <laughs> By the way, how's the sound in this? Is it, is it okay? Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking, and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exists to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time, uh, time management, because, well, if that's not 
the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? <laughs> I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about <laughs> otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? It's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all, all open white space another thing to do, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. We are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation for most is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period, in 2010, said a stunning article I read in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years up to the year 2005. I read this study, went further on. By the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It's no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the closed-circuit TV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful falling tree. You cannot just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car. <laughs> How easily we forget. Time expands time contracts, work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do ten things in an hour or one thing in ten. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for twelve hours a day and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely Microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. Gives me the goosebumps every time I read that. This is what we're contending with. Uh, a life and a culture and a world that's saying more you need to find out about this. Here's the answer. And then you get into hyperlink reality, and I know it very well. Just sucked into a world away from yourself. So, some useful things to keep in mind. What you've touched here and it was really beautiful to hear the, the groups uh, and the interviews these last few days. Um, is, is something really important and profound that 
besides everything that's going on out there, if you can turn the lens in here, you see that it's possible to connect with the deepest, most beautiful, most inspiring, wisest, most loving aspects of life. And the more you touch them in here, the more then you can share them with the world. And you've planted very potent seeds. It might be mysterious how it works, but those seeds sprout in their own time. You might not even understand what this retreat was all about until a week or a month or six months from now. But know that every moment of mindfulness and every moment of kind awareness, loving presence that you've sown here bears its fruit. Every moment is weakening, whether you realize it or not, weakening um, habits of, of suffering and strengthening habits of wisdom and compassion. So, not to, to fret and think, uh, oh, I've, I've left the retreat and now it's going to be really, you know, awful until the next retreat or I don't know how I'll be able to cope. These first days, and, and, and tomorrow we'll be saying more about the transition, but these first few days, be really kind to yourself and patient and even more than the mindfulness, remember the non-judging part. And when we break silence, sorry to uh, give you some uh, coming attraction news, uh, your personality will still be there. You know? yeah. I, I remember the first time I did a long retreat, and I got really quiet and really connected. It was so fantastic. And then we, we had... Integration week, this is on a, a three-month retreat. Integration week, which sometimes is referred to as disintegration week. Uh, but, I, but I opened up my mouth and there was judgment, paranoia, insecurity. And I went running to Joseph, my teacher, saying it didn't work. <laughs> and I... I didn't have the, the chutzpah, but I you know, thought about asking for my money back. You know. <laughs> God damn, well, what's the point? And he reminded me, it's not about getting rid of anything. It's about embracing it all, making friends with the whole package, and just being who you are. And that's enough, because the more you can be who you are, and hold it all, the, the beautiful and the, uh, the ugly, uh, the more you can hold it all, the more you can hold it all for everybody that you meet, too. So, keeping in mind a few things. First of all, as I said the last talk, this is a path that leads to happiness that is happiness, and that leads to greater happiness. It's not just about enduring. It's not just about accepting. And it's work. No getting around it. It's work. Because we have these patterns, sankharas in, in, uh, in, in Pali, these habits, these patterns, that uh, takes some um, training and some practice to learn a new way. That's why we call it practice, but it works. It really does. You have to be really patient and realize that when the dukkha comes, this is not a mistake. It's not like you've lost it. Oh, what was I, how was I kidding myself thinking that you know, I had all of it figured out? 
Dukkha is part of life. It's the first noble truth. And as the Buddha said, he taught about suffering and the end of suffering. And that's how we grow. We get humbled and then we learn. Being humbled every now and then is a really important thing. It, it's the antidote to hubris. And as long as you're learning each step of the way, there's no mistakes. Your own dukkha and dealing with it and holding it and embracing it is what gives you courage and faith that you can open up to anything. Mm -hmm. And when you see it, it can be very discouraging. Oh, there I am again. That's one way to look at it. But another way is that to realize you're seeing it. You're waking up. And if you hadn't seen it, you would just be at its mercy to keep repeating it. Joseph has this line, the not seeing of dukkha is dukkha. And Pema Chodron has a beautiful teaching. She says something like that. She says, take delight in that which sees the dukkha. Not the fact, oh, there's dukkha, but ah, there's an awareness that's seeing it. There's an awareness that's waking up to it. How wonderful. And every time you see it, gives you an opportunity to become more conscious and learn. You probably are familiar with Mara, the embodiment of evil, confusion, temptation. You know, Mara came to the Buddha before he was enlightened and said, what, what makes you think you have the right to become enlightened? And then uh, the Buddha touches his hand to the ground by, by, by all the work I've done. The earth is my witness that I have a right to be here. And then he's enlightened. But not many people know that, at least according to the, the canon, the Pali canon, Mara came to visit the Buddha many times after he was enlightened. There's a whole collection of vignettes in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Mara Samyutta, where Mara comes, there's about 20 of them or so, Mara comes to the Buddha, one of my favorites, Mara comes and, and, and says to the Buddha, you call yourself an ascetic? You're sleeping four hours a night. What kind of a wimp are you? Basically, that's what he's saying. And each time the Buddha says, I see you, Mara. And then Mara slinks away. So if Mara can come to the Buddha, cut yourself a little slack. You're going to forget. You're going to become confused. The old tapes die hard. But you're facing in the right direction. And if you're facing in the right direction, that's all you need to know. This is such a, an exciting adventure. I remember going into Joseph um, at an interview once. I'd been practicing for a number of years and had done a, a, a few longer retreats as well. And I was like, I was entering a new territory, like Alice in Wonderland. And I went into the, the interview and I said, um, wow, I don't know what I've been doing for the last five or six years, but this is like a whole new ball game. And he said, oh yeah, I know that feeling. I said, you do? He said, yeah, I get it every time I sit. I said, really? He said, yeah, and then he leaned in, I'll never forget this, with like a, a twinkle in his eye, and he said, yeah, and you know, it's like we're at the tip of the iceberg. We're at the tip of the iceberg. Now, he wasn't saying, what a bummer, how long, much longer there is to go. It's like, isn't it exciting? We keep on growing, we keep on waking up, life keeps on revealing itself. 
All we have to do is face in the right direction and have a sincere heart, as, as Jonathan was talking about this morning, having a sincere heart and a commitment to wake up and the Dharma will keep on unfolding. <clears throat> so when you're in the middle of the pain or the, uh, the heartache, uh, don't get discouraged. Ah, this is the next step in your curriculum. How wonderful. And if you can have the courage, which we've been sharing and Tara has shared so beautifully, all, all La and, and, and Jonathan, uh, just trying to uh, encourage that it's okay to face it, to open up to it, a little at a time, titrating your dukkha, I sometimes like to say. But when you face it, then it's the magical Aikido move instead of running away where it just gets bigger to learn to hold it a little at a time. You start to see you have a capacity to hold it. If I can find a, a poem. I don't know. You, yeah, I, I, it hasn't been read here. This is uh, by Jennifer Wellwood, Unconditional, it's called. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant, jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game. To play it is pure delight, to honor its form, true devotion. So to have the courage to open up to the hard stuff, this is part of your bodhisattva training. Because then you're not afraid to see it in others. And as you learn to touch that wider perspective, there's a magic that comes from a deepening faith and trust that you can meet the moment when it comes with wise awareness, with kind, loving presence. And it's never too late. It's never too late to wake up. This is one thing I, I try to, to keep in mind, even for those who who seem too far gone, um, don't give up on them. You might want to keep your distance and have very healthy boundaries, but we're all in our journey in some way and you can wake up at any moment. There's the famous story of Angulimala who is the serial killer who had killed 999 people until the Buddha woke him up. And he ended up becoming fully enlightened. And I wanted to share with you a story that uh, from somebody, a contemporary uh, story that really has inspired me. This is um, a fellow named Sean Kyler who... Um, was in prison um, and had been uh, in a gang uh, when he was um, 17 or 18, I guess it was, uh, and, um, and killed somebody. But he was um, 
fortunate enough to get involved in this program um, in, called Hudson Link for Higher Education uh, and Mercy College. And a friend of mine um, was instrumental in creating this program. And he, uh, this is from his valed valedictorian speech. He says, we come here to celebrate achievement over failure, perseverance over hesitancy, better tomorrows over the worst of our yesterdays. We're no longer the people we were when we first took our step on this academic journey. We do not perceive or experience the world in the same manner we once did. Our cognitive ability as well as our behavior has suddenly undergone a change, a transformation. This transformation is not so much a metamorphosis into someone new, but actually a reconnection to our authentic self. That person we were before and our response to life situations detoured us from the socially acceptable path to success. And he says, how he goes on to say how he always loved school, but he was shy about succeeding in it because of peer pressure. And in his adolescence, he'd get good grades, but he'd hide them from his friends and lying to them, saying he was just lucky, so they'd continue to accept him. Then he goes on, at some point, my faulty thinking turned into my reality, and my academic pursuit was left on the side of the road with my new reality, the acceptance of my friends became the most important thing to me. I was blinded by the desire to be accepted, and ultimately I became a follower. I had to live with shame for 21 years until life presented me with an opportunity to mend my mother's broken heart and a chance to rectify my misplaced values and misplaced loyalty and my faulty thinking. This college gave me a chance to ask for mercy. He said, one professor asked him, how do you plan to touch the world? And for him, that was a turning point. My answer is clear now. By using this experience to help as many people as I can to taste education's sweet elixir, he said one teacher told him any great change must expect opposition because it shakes the foundation of privilege. And he thanked another teacher whose solid, solid toughness provided the discipline he needed not to fall short. Then he goes on, I fully accept the philosophy that in order to change a person's behavior, you must first change the way that person thinks. And to his fellow graduates, he said, Today signifies the beginning of our duty to use this education to better not only ourselves, but humanity. Our communities need us to help save our younger generation. It is obligatory that we respond. We must never forget that our supporters who have extended charity to us, so it's incumbent upon us to extend even more charity to others. We can no longer sit idly by we are now beacons of light that must steer those lost in the dark to the shores of positivity that come through education. We are now reconnected to our authentic self. It is time to let that person shine, to let that person reach for the stars and touch the world. And he finished his valedictorian speech with an essay that was his beacon, um, a tribute to uh, Mother Teresa. He said, anyway, a tribute to Mother Teresa. And this is his version of her, her poem. People are often unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you're kind, people may accuse you of selfish, ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you're successful, you'll win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you're honest and frank, people may cheat you, but be honest anyway. What you spend years building, someone could destroy overnight, but we have to build anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. 
we're going to do good anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, some may be jealous. We're going to be happy anyway. If you give the world the best you have, it might never be enough. But we're going to give the best we can anyway. Because you see in the final analysis, in the final analysis, it's between you and yourself. It was never between you and them anyway. Don't give up on others and certainly don't give up on yourself. How amazing your, our good karma is that somehow we've encountered the Dharma and whether you call it the Dharma or whatever body of wisdom, whether it's Buddhism or other paths that really touch you and bring out the best in you. How amazingly good fortune to encounter and not only encounter but have the inclination and opportunity to practice. That's extraordinarily good karma. There are many people who have good circumstances but they don't realize the game is not about getting as much as you can or as quickly as you can. Somebody asked uh, John, uh, J, uh, yeah, John Paul Getty, no, John D. Rockefeller, when he was the richest person in, in the world, someone asked, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money will be enough? And his, rep- his reply was, just a little more. Yikes! And somehow we have the good karma of seeing where happiness lies and the opportunity and the inclination to practice. Wow. What a joyful responsibility to share our practice with, with the world. And a few more supports for that. One is at the beginning of the retreat we took precepts, we took guidelines for uh, ethical behavior. The Buddha said that is the foundation for inner peace. Here's a quote from the Buddha. For one who leads a virtuous life, it is a natural law that remorse will not arise. For one free of remorse, it is a natural law that gladness will arise. For one who is glad at heart, it is a natural law that joy will arise. He goes on beyond joy to the highest happinesses. So, to really learn to listen inside because here is all the guidance you need. The precepts are the container to not cause harm intentionally to another or to yourself. And if you listen carefully, you know. In the uh, remember, I mentioned there are 52 mental factors uh, in in uh, in Buddhist psychology. Two of those factors are called hiri and otapam, which are translated in kind of Victorian English: moral shame and moral dread. Those are wholesome factors. You might think, gosh, that's... What's another word for for those? Conscience. We're wired up when we know something is off. We, if we can listen, hear well enough, 
we can feel it. But usually the impulse control is not so strong and we don't realize how it's going to feel on the other side. So sometimes I think of the, uh, the Dharma path as learning the power of delayed gratification. Have you ever done something that you just say, yeah, this is going to feel right or good or really good or clicking that send on the email, they deserve it. <laughs> and then afterwards you say, what was I thinking? How many mind moments are spent afterwards compared to the few my moments before. This is something that mindfulness can help us with. Because when you've got that feeling, and this is how it works with Hiri and Otapam, when you've got that feeling, mm, I don't know, or moral dread, thinking of somebody else who you really respect, looking over your shoulder, you might think of, Tara or Jonathan or La saying, hi, how are we doing there? You know, as you're about to click the send button. Mm, you know. You'll save yourself so much cleanup time. Yeah. And one of the one of the, the the exercises that I often do if I'm at that choice point is just asking myself, how is this going to feel later on? Next week or six months from now. That's my north star, as I call it. Hmm, how am I going to look back on this and feel? You know, is it worth it? It saves so much yuck and hassle but even then, when you have the best intention, we're human and we blow it. That's part of the deal. And as long as, I said before, you keep on learning, the Buddha has a beautiful discourse to his son. He says, you might uh, think of something, that you, an action you're about to do, and if you can, reflect before, how is this going to feel? Is this going to lead to suffering or happiness? And if you don't want to suffer, then don't do it, if that's where it's leading to. But then he says, you might not realize until you're right in the middle of the, of the words or the, the actions, and ask yourself, where is this leading to? And then act accordingly. But then he says, at the end of the sutta, you might not get it until after the words have been spoken and the deeds have been done. He doesn't say, go ahead and beat yourself up. No. He says, think to yourself, what can I learn from this? What needs to be done? Any kind of reparation that needs to be done or sharing it with, a, with somebody I, I can trust and respect, if not repairing. And what can I learn and how can I have what he calls wise remorse that commits to doing it differently in the future? And if you have that wise remorse, not guilt, I come from a lineage of guilt, I know guilt. If you have wise remorse, you're keeping on learning and you can actually dedicate the fruits of that mistake to for the benefit of those that might have you might have hurt in in their honor to make a commitment as well as for yourself so continually holding your life as a practice exercise and experiment of continually learning and waking up. And waking up, not only for yourself, but for everyone. For everyone. This is a, a 
couple of quotes from uh, one from uh, Dilgal Kense Rinpoche. When you recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. It's the natural expression. This is from Lewis Thomas, a great biologist who wrote a fabulous classic, Lives of a Cell. He says, I maintain that we are born and grow up with a fondness for each other and that we have genes for that. We can be talked out of that fondness for the genetic message is like a distant music and some of us are hard of hearing. Societies are noisy affairs, drowning out the sound of ourselves and our connection. Hard of hearing, we go to war. Stone deaf, we make thermonuclear missiles. Nonetheless, the music is there, waiting for more listeners. So I want to say a, a few words about making a difference in the world. This is a, a pretty amazing time that we're living in. Never before has the fate of our species depended on our actions and the fate of so many other species and the health of this planet depended on humanity waking up. Never before has there been the degree of greed, hatred, delusion coupled with power that can cause so much destruction. Never before has there been as much consciousness on this planet as right now. Never before. As my friend Roger Walsh says, we're in a race between fear and consciousness. And consciousness trumps fear. Whether there's time, this is the interesting part of the game. But we will, as a species, wake up sooner or later. That's what suffering does. And the way I see it, the sooner we wake up, the less suffering. So what the game becomes is bringing as much consciousness into the world and being agents of consciousness because it's contagious. That's how it works. We are inspired by others and we're, we can inspire others as well. And you might think, oh my goodness, you know, what's the point? It's just, you know, too much. Whether For me personally, climate change has been a, a, a real uh, motivator and uh, a place where I... Uh, I'm moved to do something. You might be moved to do something in other areas, whether it's um, uh, racial injustice or um, economic uh, inequality or um, so many places of suffering. As, as, my, uh, as one inspiration, Andrew Harvey says, follow your heartbreak. Follow where your heart is breaking and put your energy there. Because when you act and make a difference, then you start to release all of that feeling of helplessness. Angelus Arian, Law quoted Angelus Arian uh, the other night. Angelus Arian has a beautiful teaching. She says, uh, action absorbs anxiety. And when we do things with each other, 
there's what uh, Nelson Mandela called a multiplicity of courage. There's a kind of synergy that can uh, inspire and magnetize others. And for those who think, oh, what's the point? I want to share with you um, a passage from um, Howard Zinn, who wrote the People's History of the United States, the unwhitewashed history. Um, and he was also uh, John Cabotson's uh, father-in-law. Uh, if I can find it here. Here it is. He wrote this essay called The Optimism of Uncertainty. He says, An optimist isn't necessarily a blithe, slightly sappy whistler in the dark of our time. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. But if we remember those times and places, and there are so many where people have behaved magnificently, this gives us energy to act and at least the possibility of sending the spinning top of a world in a different direction. The uh, great historian Arnold Toynbee, one of the great 20th century historians, um, said in the 20th century, he thought that perhaps looking back on the 20th century, the most significant development in human civilization might turn out to be Buddhism coming to the West. Pretty far out, huh? Because what the Dharma shows is we're all interconnected and the more we can wake up and become conscious, the more we can change and let our compassion flower. So here we are, one of many, many, not only Buddhist sanghas, but uh, consciousness um, agents. What better thing to do with your life than to express your practice in a way that relieves suffering around you and makes a difference in the world. You were probably inspired by a friend or maybe a talk that you heard or somebody inspired you. You become that same agent that passes on that lineage. Because what people really need to do is see the possibility. And you can be that embodiment. Hmm. And so many interesting things have been happening lately. As, uh, I was uh, sharing this with, um, is it? with some some friends, all the interesting developments that have, have gone on just in the last month, particularly around climate change. That's one that, that, was, that was motivating me. Just in the last month, you probably all were aware of the speeches that Pope Francis gave to the UN, to, uh, to the Congress. The same week as the president of China and the President of the United States made an agreement that climate change has to be a high priority, the two most powerful countries in the world. The same time that six of the largest financial institutions, including the four largest U.S. banks, pledged to cooperate to accelerate investment in renewable energy. The same 
month that it was, it was revealed that the amount of money the world has pledged to divest from fossil fuels last year ago at this time was $52 billion and now is $2.6 trillion, 50 times higher than a year before. The same week that the Huffington Post lead story was the week the climate conversation changed. Things can happen at a very fast pace. Not to be complacent, but to do our parts. And I say, whether it's climate change or whatever touches your heart, Martin Seligman, who is the founder of Positive Psychology, the Positive Psychology Movement, he wrote this book, Authentic Happiness, and uh, in it he says that authentic happiness is um, identifying your own strengths, your own gifts, and sharing them with the world. It's not about what you can get, it's about what you can offer, what you can give. And everybody has been gifted with something with some goodness in order to come here, something's going right inside there. And whether it's a big cause like climate change or just being a really good friend and, and companion, compassionate companion to those who are suffering near you, this is what energizes us. So you don't have to go around thinking it's up to you to save the world. That's way too much. But it's up to you to do what really moves you and nourishes you and doing it with others if you feel like it's too much, if it's more than a one-on-one -on -one situation. Doing it with others is really energizing. It's a beautiful... Um, book called The Green Boat by Mary Pfeiffer about the grassroots movement in Nebraska, which was the stumbling block for the Keystone Pipeline um, not being approved up until now. And that happened, by the way, when uh, Mary Pfeiffer took a Joanna Macy retreat and said she's got to go back and do something and she, with some other friends, started this grassroots movement that included people from every political spectrum and background. It wasn't just some, you know, California uh, lefties. Uh, everybody saying, hey, this is what's happening. And it became really fun to do. They got really energized and excited. And that led to snagging the Keystone Pipeline. Isn't that interesting? So, and she mentions in the book this psychological study that says when you hold another person's hand, it's been shown that the threshold for physiological and psychological pain is much higher. We know that so. When we can be there in the company of people who can hold us or be with us or hold our hands together, then we find courage and energy and um, inspiration. This is from uh, Thomas Merton, is saying that an activist has to come to terms with the fact that what is done may ultimately be fruitless, but that you're not doing it solely for the hope of results. He says that as you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate on the value, the rightness, the truth of what you do for itself. And there's a, a story in the Talmud that says, if the world were ending and you knew that nothing would make a difference, you'd still do what's most aligned with the heart's deepest values. Joanna Macy, who probably many of you know, who's such an inspiration, uh, her recent book, Active Hope, and she used to hate the word hope. She would teach these 
workshops, despair and empowerment workshops, and she said, hope, I don't want to hear about hope, you know, two pie in the sky. Her last book was Active Hope, where she redefined hope for herself and for others, and she says, active hope is identifying the outcomes we hope for and then playing our part in bringing them about. Focus on what we deeply long for and then proceed to take determined steps in that direction, becoming an active participant in bringing about what we hope for. The Dalai Lama says, world systems come and go. But if we've done our part, we can look back and know we did the best we can. If we didn't, then that's a cause for remorse. Mm -hmm. And uh, Julia Butterfly Hill, who's a, another inspiration of mine, she's the one who lived up in a tree for two years in 1998 uh, to save the, um, the redwoods from being logged. And she's very, very in inspiring, very dynamic speaker. And she gives, I've seen her, at, uh, and she's come to the Joy Course and uh, just really uh, amazing dynamo. And she gives talks and she says, people come up to her afterwards and, and they say, oh, Julia, you've inspired me so. And she says, oh, that's so wonderful. Inspired you to do what? Follow your heartbreak. Know that just putting your practice into embodied action, service, making a difference to others, that's the fullness of sharing your practice. And you can do it quietly, and some people, it might be just sitting in a cave. That has its value too. Or deepening, becoming a monk or a nun. That has its value too. So don't have the idea that it's supposed to look some way, but when you do it in the spirit of benefiting others, this is where the practice really comes alive. This is from Yoshal Kempo. He says, we're not practicing for ourselves alone since everyone is involved and included in the great scope of this perfectly pure motivation to benefit others. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified and purified and transformed in us and become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart which we, the bodhisattvas, strive to embody. So, our practice is not just for ourselves. Everybody benefits from this pure motivation, awakening for our own benefit and peace of mind, but seeing it as a gift that we give to the world. And the beautiful thing is, we don't have to do it alone. In fact, we can't do it alone. That's why the Buddha said that having good friends is the whole of the holy life. So I close with this poem from uh, Dana Falls an inspiration to all of us, uh, called Sangha. Teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our souls. When we stand side by side, let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. 
may we be reminders, each for the other, that the path of transformation passes through the flames. To take one step is courageous. To stay on the path day after day, choosing the unknown, and together facing yet another fear that is nothing short of grace. So let's sit for a few moments. May my practice help awaken all the good in me, the wisdom, the compassion, the caring. And may our practice ripple out and be of benefit to all beings everywhere and this wonderful planet that we live on. Thank you for your attention.